The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. It's a great privilege to study God's Word together. We are going through the book of Acts. By the way, happy Pentecost Sunday today. Did you know today was Pentecost Sunday? It is. Today is Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after the Passover, Pentecost Sunday. And today, today I am preaching on Pentecost out of the Bible in the book of Acts. I did not plan that. That is not luck. That is not dink. That is God's providence and sovereignty. I believe just a special gift for our church. Couldn't have planned it any better. As a matter of fact, if I had planned it, those plans would have been messed up. And it wouldn't have, or I would have forced it. So it's just, it's amazing. Uh, it just so happens we're preaching on Pentecost Sunday, and today happens to be Pentecost Sunday. In preparation for that, please go to Isaiah 61, and I want to read uh, Isaiah 61. Uh, one, verse one and verse two, while I'm reading this, keep this in mind. When Jesus began his ministry at age 30, immediately after he was baptized, he began his public ministry, preaching and teaching for the first time at age 30 in his hometown of Nazareth. One of the first things that he did is he went into the local hometown synagogue, was honored as the teacher of the day, was given the scroll of Isaiah. He opened the scroll And he read the following verses. And that's Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. After he read just that short passage, a verse and a half, he gave back the scroll. He sat down. Everyone in the synagogue was fixated upon him, says Luke 4. And Jesus said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What scripture? This one I'm going to read. And I'm going to stop in the middle of verse 2 because that is where Jesus stopped. As a matter of fact, if I read all of verse 2 or if Jesus had read all of verse 2, I believe, and then he said, this day this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he would have been wrong. He purposely stopped in the middle of verse 2 because the second part of verse 2 was not fulfilled on that day or in the time of Christ's first coming. Important to keep that in mind. So let's go ahead and look at Isaiah 61. Verse 1 and 2, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's where Jesus stopped. This scripture was fulfilled in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry. He didn't read the second part of verse 2 that says, and the day of vengeance of our God, the day of vengeance. Well, the reason Jesus didn't read that is because Christ's first coming was not the day of vengeance, also known in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord. And most of the time, speaking prophetically in the Old Testament, that phrase, the day of the Lord, occurs many, many times in the prophets. It's a technical phrase. And it usually has to do with judgment, judgment of God upon the people. And prophetically, it is judgment by God at the end of the age, at the end of the age, with respect to the judgment of the coming Messiah. Jesus didn't come the first time to enact eschatological final wrath and fury in the judgment of God. And that's why he didn't read the second part of verse 2. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the time of end time judgment. That judgment of God, the day of the Lord, is reserved for Christ's second coming. 
So it's amazing. If you look at Isaiah 61, verse 2, between the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse, and you can even take note of that, there is a gap of about at least 2,000 years between those two phrases. 2,000 years. Because the second part of verse 2 hasn't happened yet. The day of vengeance of our God. That is yet future. That is yet coming. That is the theme of the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19. The day of the Lord is yet to come. Now, Isaiah, the prophet, 700 years before Christ, he wrote a very long book over the course of decades, actually. 66 chapters in our English Bible. And Isaiah is being used by the Spirit of God to write just amazing history, but also amazing prophecies, very specifically about the coming Messiah. And so here's Isaiah, you can imagine, as an older Jewish man. He's accomplished all of his writing. He assembles this book together called the Book of Isaiah. And it's got countless prophecies about the coming Messiah. Isaiah believed in the Messiah. He knew the Messiah was coming as God's representative. And yet from my, as I, Isaiah's point of view, he's thinking that the Messiah is coming only one time to fulfill all of this. So it, it must have been confusing and mind-boggling to Isaiah because he has prophecies predicting that the Messiah would come and be born of a virgin. That he would be born as a human baby. That's Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. He also gave prophecies that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. That's Isaiah 53 and many other passages. And at the same time, he gave prophecies that the Messiah would be a coming, conquering king who would literally reign on the earth in glory, subjugating all of his enemies. So how, how can this be? How can this be? Isaiah didn't know there were two, and if you count the rapture, three comings of the Messiah. He didn't know that. All he knew was one coming. The fact that the Messiah would come more than once was a mystery to him, not revealed to him. It's not revealed till the New Testament. And that's why Peter, in the New Testament, in referring to the prophets, when they wrote about the Messiah, they didn't know the timing. The timing was a mystery. And here is a classic example of prophetic literature about the Messiah, where God takes a near event and an end times event, puts them together, and for the modern reader, it looks like this all happens at the same time. And yet there are thousands of years that transpire in between two phrases in verse 2. Now, this is typical of prophetic literature in the Old Testament. And if you're not aware of that distinctive, when you're reading through the prophets, you are going to be confused. And it's also true of prophetic literature from the Old Testament when it is used in the New Testament. And a classic example is Joel chapter 2, which is the key Old Testament passage in the sermon today. So let's go ahead and flip now to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Today we're going to look at verses 16 through 36. 16 through 36. I titled it, Introducing the Age of the Spirit. There are many, I've really struggled with the title because there's a lot of things that this could have been titled, this event, this passage. Last week we looked at uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 15, leading up to Peter's sermon. And chapter 2, verse 1 through 15 that we looked at last week, what happened? It was, well, chapter 1 is... Jesus is alive. He appears to his disciples over 40 days. He appears specifically to the apostles and says, wait, be patient, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit because he will empower you to be my witnesses. Wait in Jerusalem. And then he ascended into heaven. And then the apostles, 11 of them, they got together with the other disciples and there were 120 of them and they kept waiting and praying and worshiping God together as one unified 
body of believers. And then they replaced Judas with Matthias as the 12th apostle. And that brings us up to Acts chapter 2, where we looked at last week, verses 1 through 15, where all 120 are there together, probably in the upper room, praying, waiting on God, and boom, on Pentecost Sunday, God does a miracle. God fulfills Old Testament prophecy. God fulfills the prophecy of Joel chapter 2, where the Spirit of God comes down on these 120 believers like never before in the history of the earth. Now, the Holy Spirit has always been around. He's always been with His people. He came and ministered to people in the Old Testament in special ways at times. He's always been with his people. He's always been involved in all the ministries of God from creation to salvation in the Old Testament. But what was unique in the ministry of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit would be poured out in a universal way among believers like never before. He would also indwell believers, every single believer, and permanently that was not true in the Old Testament. And many other things that were unique about the ministry of the Holy Spirit on this day that was prophesied by Joel hundreds of years before it ever happened. And now is the day. And so the Holy Spirit of God comes down on a wall, 120 believers, and it says that the Spirit of God landed or was distributed on every single one of them, all 120, not just the apostles, but non-apostles. Men who were believers. Not just men, but also the women who were there. That was also unique. In the Old Testament, uh, if you were a priest, you couldn't be a woman. You had to be a qualified man from a specific tribe. And the Holy Spirit was selective sometimes, and who he landed upon and worked through, whether it was a, a prophet, a priest, a king, and usually just for a time. Not anymore. It's totally new. It's a new age, a new era. The Holy Spirit comes universally upon every believer, landing personally upon every single believer there that day, all 120. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were all doing miraculous manifestations of the gift of speaking in tongues, it says. Speaking in a real, human, foreign language as a witness to the thousands of people that were there in Jerusalem at the time of the Pentecost holiday. And so you've got these 120 believers. They're filled with the Spirit. They are excited. They are exuberant. They are in order. They're obedient. They're doing what God has called them to do. And they're speaking these multitude of foreign languages. And there's this mass of people around in Jerusalem hearing all this, this loud noise, this supernatural, unexplainable act they've never seen before. What is going on? These people are weird. They're different. I don't understand it. I can't interpret their behavior. They are enthusiastic. Wow, what is going on? Said the crowd. And some even said we saw last week. Well, they must be drunk. And Peter said, no, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Somewhat sarcastic, but true. And now Peter explains what this amazing event is that transpired. And basically, Peter is saying this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy predicted very specifically by the prophet Joel of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the end of the age like never before. And that is what you're experiencing. That is what you're seeing. That is what you're hearing. It is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. It is Pentecost Sunday, as we've come to know it. It's actually the birthday of the church. Not only happy Pentecost Sunday to you, but happy birthday, church. This is the beginning of the church age. That's clear. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, months before his death, he said, I will build my church. The church didn't exist yet. 
This is when the church began. Paul said clearly in Ephesians that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles. This is it. And the New Testament prophets. This is it. It's a new era. It's a new day. It's the spirit. Uh, it's the age of the Holy Spirit. It's the age of Pentecost. It's the age of the church. It's the age of the body of Christ. It is the age of the messianic age. It is the age of the beginning of the last days. It's the age that will culminate in the day of the Lord, finally in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It is an incredibly significant event. So with that, let's go ahead and look at now Peter's amazing sermon. This is the first Christian sermon. This is the first sermon ever preached by the church. This is the first sermon of the apostles. And they have a ready audience. They're at a holiday, a Jewish feast day called Pentecost or first fruits, first fruits. It's amazing. Uh, even the events in the Old Testament law, aside from explicit verbal prophecies, but all the types, uh, the temple, the things inside the temple, the things that the priests did inside the temple, the holidays in the Old Testament or the feast days, they all had significance. And their ultimate significance is fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is also true of Pentecost Sunday. It was a, a mandated annual feast for the Jews given by God to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. Pentecost Sunday, that's what it was. It was also known as the feast, get this, of first fruits. First fruits. Where the first harvest would come, guaranteeing more would come. It's the first of the harvest to come, guaranteeing that all of the harvest would eventually come. First fruits. So it's not coincidental or ironic that Here is Pentecost Sunday. It is the feast of the first fruits. And you have 120 people who are the first fruits of salvation in Christ in the church age. Thus guaranteeing by way of fulfillment, there are more to come. There are more to come. Believing Jews that day, believing Jews throughout history. And in addition to that, believing Gentiles like never before. It's awesome. The feast of first fruits being fulfilled before their very eyes. Uh, Growing up, I've said before that I had a green thumb, meaning I loved plants. And I actually was pretty good with them. And one thing I did from the time I was, I think, in kindergarten until I was a senior in high school, in our backyard in Denver, we had this huge plot of dirt, and I would plant the annual McManus garden in it. And I had maybe 10 to 15 different uh, vegetables and fruits in there, from corn to beans to onions to green peppers to broccoli to cauliflower to carrots to lettuce to on and on. I tried everything. Rhubarb. Uh, I wasn't always successful. Potatoes. Those were hard to grow. Anyway, uh, but every year I had radishes. And the reason I had radishes is because it was, regardless of how of a green thumb you are, radishes, they'll grow for anybody. They will grow. And the cool thing about radishes, you plant them in the ground, and, man, you can harvest them in, like, 28 days. So you're waiting for the corn and the tomatoes for, like, three months. But in the meantime, uh, it was just a joy to go out and, and pick the radishes. And that was, like, the first fruits, the guarantee that, okay, more, more fruit is coming, more veggies are coming later on. So the radishes were, like, the first fruits. For me, but Pentecost was first fruits for God's church age, his beloved disciples that he would save all throughout the ages, even up to this very day. So let's go ahead and look at this, uh, God's outpouring of the Holy Spirit through this amazing sermon from the Apostle Peter, 16 through 36. We'll just take it a section at a time. I broke it up into five uh, sections, kind of thematically, as Peter flows through this beautiful evangelistic sermon. It's amazing. It's a model sermon. This is how Christian preachers should preach. This is how pastors should preach. 
from the Scriptures, quoting the Scriptures, taking them literally, taking them authoritatively, carefully exegeting them in the context, Christ-centered. He is the answer. He is the theme. He is the fulfillment. He's the one that gives life. That's what a pastor should do. That's what elders should do. Pray and preach. That's Acts chapter 6. Pray and preach. And so that's why it's important when it says in verse 16, uh, and even before that it says, uh, actually verse 14, Peter taking his stand with the 11. The 11 who? The 11 apostles. They're standing in solidarity. The 12 apostles who would be the first 12 pastors of the first church. This is what pastors do. First and foremost, they preach the word of God. They do the ministry of the word. That's what changes souls eternally. It's the model. And it should be even to this day. And so let's look at Peter's powerful, amazing sermon. It is all about Christ and the life that he provides for sinners like us. Point number one is I just call it the introduction because it is. This is kind of the intro to what he's going to preach on. It's the intro that lays the foundation. It's the intro because he quotes scripture and then he basically comments on what that scripture means. The introduction. Predicted in the Old Testament. Predicted in the old, what's predicted? The events that they just saw. These 3,000 plus, these 5,000 plus Jews standing around there in Jerusalem just saw an amazing event. They heard a noise as of heaven that sounded like thunder that shook the earth that probably scared them to death. They're wondering what in the world was that noise? And then they see these 120 Christians making all kinds of weird noise if they don't understand the foreign language that they're preaching. That's their audience. And they can't explain it. What in the world is going on? So Peter's sermon actually is given to answer the question that they're asking. What is going on? What is this we see? What is this we hear? And these are all Jews. And Peter's like, well, you guys are Jews. Don't you know your Old Testament Bible? This is predicted in the Old Testament. If you were discerning, paying attention to the signs of the times, you should know. And that's Peter's goal, and he's going to explain it, make it very clear what this was all about, the introduction. So let's go ahead and look at verses 16 out of verse 21. Uh, Peter says they're not drunk, and he begins to preach. Verse 16, and he says, but this, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Stop there. This is very, very important. Verse 16. If you don't understand verse 16, you are not going to understand the rest of this passage or the rest of this chapter of what was going on. And I would posit that it's not really difficult. But as I was going through... After my study and reading, and then I, I go to the commentaries, about 20 of them, and those commentaries, they are all over the map. It, it was not helpful. All kinds of different interpretations and this and that. And uh, Man, if you're just an average Christian wanting to do Bible study and you happen to consult all 20, you'd come away very confused and saying, you know what, I don't think I know what this passage means. So we're just going to take it at face value. Starting with verse 16, this is key to this uh, understanding of what Peter was doing. And he said, but this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now, verse 16, this, it's a demonstrative pronoun. Uh, it means something. It's very specific. A demonstrative pronoun points to something, this. So in the context, Peter said this. Well, what is this? This is the events that just happened in verses 1 through 13. That's not difficult, right? This, what you just saw. Uh, the behavior from the 120 believers where the Spirit of God was upon them and the noise that came with it from heaven and shook planet Earth and all their foreign speaking of languages instantaneously and miraculously, that's the this, this, this behavior you just saw, this is what it is. So this points to what just happened. 
the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God on 120 believers. So you got to understand, and there's a lot of knowledgeable commentators that get the this wrong. They don't know what this is, or they explain it improperly. So Peter says, this, what you just saw, these events, this is what? Or King James actually does the best in terms of the translation of the Greek word here, uh, the demonstrative pronoun again. King James says, this is that. That's the best translation. The rest of them say, this is what, which is okay, but it's not the best. This is that. So that's what Peter says. This, the event you just saw, is that. This specifically is that. Well, what was Peter talking about that? Well, that refers to what Joel said in Joel chapter 2. So what you just saw with 120 believers is what was explained by Joel hundreds of years ago in Joel chapter 2 when he said and quotes God, I will pour out my spirit. That's what it is. Really simple. So this is the pouring out of God's spirit as he predicted in Joel chapter 2. Not very difficult. This is that what was spoken to, because a lot of commentators say, well, this is kind of like that. Well, it's sort of like that. And the reason they say that is because they read this and say, okay, it shall be in the last days. God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. Okay, that's fine. And people are going to prophesy. Okay, yeah, there's some of that was going on in the New Testament. Uh, visions, mm, okay, yeah, visions and dreams. Uh, verse 17, uh, I'll pour out my spirit. Verse 8, no problem. Oh, and then they get to verse 19 and they have problems. And they trip all over it. Verse 18 or 19. And I will grant wonders in the sky. And they're thinking, wait a minute. What kind of wonders? Signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. That didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. That didn't happen anywhere in the book of Acts. That hasn't happened in the church age. What in the world's going on? This can't be that. This has to be kind of like that. And then it gets worse. Verse 20. And the sun will be turned into... The sun will be turned into... That hasn't happened. This can't possibly have happened. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Psh, there it is. The moon hasn't turned to blood. Everybody knows it. There's an error in the Bible. Blah, 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 blah. Or you just come up with all kinds of crazy interpretations. And so that's why a common view is it's not this is that. It's this is kind of like that, sort of. And then you've got to do all these exegetical gymnastics to come up with a concocted answer that nobody understands and doesn't represent the text. And then it ends, verse 20, before the great and glorious day of the Lord. So, uh, as a matter of fact, there's a, uh, evangelical, an evangelical view that says none of this is that. None of this happened. As a matter of fact, get this, Peter was wrong. When Peter said this is that, to all of you, he was wrong. He blew it. Because Peter blew it a lot. That's a view. Actually, I'm just telling you, that is a heretical view. That is a wrong view. That is a disgraceful view. That is a confusing, misleading view that undermines Scripture. It just said that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he speaks filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit of God. He's not going to make a mistake and be wrong. So how do we explain this passage? Well, there's a reason I read Isaiah 61 as a precedent. I could have given many other more passages in the Old Testament regarding prophecy where there's an event that's near and then there's another event that is hundreds of years later, and they are side by side in proximity in the same passage, same verse, same chapter, and it seems like they all happen at the same time. But they don't. So that's the key. So I'm going to just simplify it for you. I am going to propose that verse 16, 17, and 18 happened on the day of Pentecost. 
and actually continues to happen. I will pour, the main thing God did there was I will pour out my spirit. I will pour out my spirit. God began to pour out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. God continues to pour out his spirit. He hasn't stopped. He's not going to stop on the church age, on every believer that gets saved. The spirit of God comes to live inside them. We live in the age of the spirit. And, and then I'm going to propose that between verse 18 and 19, there's a huge gap of time. Further, verses 19 and 20, I believe, happen at the end of the age. They happen at the time of Christ's coming. They happen at the time at the end of the tribulation that is described in the book of Revelation. So there's this huge gap of hundreds of years. No, a huge gap of 2,000 years from the day of Pentecost until the fulfillment of verses 19 and 20. And so I think the key to understanding this passage, which is the content of everything that Peter preaches, is you've got to understand it properly with proper hermeneutics, and I'll just summarize what they are. I think everything that is described in verses 17 to 20 is are actual events. Peter was not wrong. They are actually already fulfilled or are going to be fulfilled. This is actual from God's point of view. In addition to being actual, it is also literal. We shouldn't start because you can't explain it or you're confused. Start allegorizing and spiritualizing and saying, well, verse 20 uh, the turn, the sun turns dark. Now that's not really gonna, that's just metaphorical that, uh, at some point in history it was just kind of a bad day and gloomy and it's like the sun got dark and, and the moon doesn't really turn to blood but it just kind of turns red on certain, no, we're, we're not gonna, uh, allegorize because Peter quotes several Old Testament passages in the first two chapters and he never allegorizes. He takes every single one of them literally. Psalm 110, literal. Psalm 16, 10. Joel 2, literal. All of it. It's all literal as Peter interprets it. So he doesn't deviate and say, well, I can't explain this one, so we need to be allegorical. So actual events needs to be taken literally. I'm also going to propose that 17 through 20 is chronological. It needs to go in order. And a lot of commentators, they don't do that. Uh, I think it begins with verse 17. Look at this. Two key phrases to help you understand this passage. Verse 17. Peter says, this is that spoken of by Joel. Well, what did Joel say in Joel chapter 2? Well, God said, and it shall be in the last days. In the last days. Well, when are the last days? That's kind of the key. Well, the New Testament tells us we are in the last days. In the last days. Hebrews chapter 1 says that we are in the last days. Hebrews chapter 1 says the last days began with the first coming of Christ. 1 John chapter 2 says, my children, my beloved fellow believers, it is the last hour. It is the last. We are in the last days. 1 Peter does the same thing. These are the last days. It's the last time. It's the last hour. It's probably the most specific is Hebrews chapter 9. I think it's verse 26, where the author of Hebrews says, with the coming of Christ is the consummation of all the ages. And he, he refers to the found, from the foundation of the world, that's creation, to the consummation of the ages that began with the coming of Christ and his death. So it's a very specific yet different way of saying we are in the last days. So what are the last days of verse 17? The last days began with the coming of Christ especially with his ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So we are in the last days. And the last days isn't a week. It's not one day. It is a long period of time. We are still in the last days. Paul used the phrase as well, the last days. In the last days, perilous times will come, said Paul. We are in the last days. Perilous times are here. So that's key. Verse 17, the last days. That, that's the chronology. It begins. This event, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, began with the inauguration of the last days, which was the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. It's chronological, and it extends all the way to verse 20. At the end of verse 20, it says, the day of the Lord. These are like two bookends. The last days, 2,000 years ago, 
culminating in the day of the Lord. And everything else between is what we know as the church age and including the tribulation. So there is the chronology. It goes in order. The day of the Lord, like I said, all over the Old Testament, probably the majority of the times it refers to the judgment of God through the Messiah at the very end of the age. And in the New Testament, in the book of Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, and especially the book of Revelation, more detail is given to us that the day of the Lord is the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming, where he comes as king of kings and lord of lords with fiery eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth to judge his enemies and begin his reign on the earth. That is the day of the Lord that hasn't come yet. So in other words, verses 19 and 20 haven't happened yet, but they will. But they are events that are a part of the messianic age or the church age or the the spirit age or the last days. It's just in the proper order. Uh, some commentators would say verse 19 and 20 have already happened. I would say, no, it hasn't. And the way they do it is they just give it an allegorical interpretation. As a matter of fact, some commentators say that uh, where it says uh, the sun will go, grow dark and the moon turn into blood, that actually happened before the day of Pentecost. It happened at the cross of Christ. When Jesus died and the sky went dark, doesn't say anything about the moon, but that's what they say. And they say, well, actually, these events happened before the day of Pentecost. And I'm saying, no, Peter said, this is it. This happened. This is today. The day of Pentecost is inaugurating that will lead up to these events, the day of the Lord at the end of the age. Uh, math, Jesus in Matthew 24, in talking about the future, talking about the coming Antichrist who would be real, the tribulation that would be real, that from Revelation we know is at the end of the age, Jesus quoted from Joel. And he quoted this verse. And he talked about, in that day, at the coming of the Son of Man, the sun will go dark and the moon will turn to blood. There it is. From Jesus himself. And then John the Apostle, who wrote in 95 AD, said the same thing in Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 8, Revelation chapter 18, refer to every one of these events. The sun going dark, the moon turning to blood, fire, smoke, all of it, and the day of the Lord. And John the Apostle in 96 AD attributed that to the end of the age, at the time of the tribulation, at the time of the coming of the Messiah. So this is yet future. So hopefully that context helps you understand what's going on here. So uh, what Peter is doing is he's telling us the end of the age is upon us. The consummation of the ages is upon us. The day of the Spirit is upon us. The last days are here. The last days have begun and will culminate in the day of the Lord. And right now we have seen many things fulfilled, mostly the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all believers like never before. And the Holy Spirit will continue to be poured out on every believer who comes to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And at some point when Christ comes again, just after the tribulation, we will see the day of the Lord. And every one of these phrases will be utterly, literally fulfilled, just as Peter said as he was carried about by the Spirit of God. Absolutely amazing. Two times I said the key phrase, I believe, in verse 17, he says, I will pour out my Spirit. I will pour out my Spirit. He says it in verse 17, and he says it again in verse 18. And, that, and that's what Peter said. This is that which Joel spoke about. God's going to pour out his Spirit in the last days. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 33, Peter's preaching a sermon. He, he's preaching the sermon going on, and he says, that which you saw today, middle of verse 33, 
is the, the promise of the Father of the Holy Spirit that he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. This is a literal fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel pouring out his spirit. Absolutely amazing. And we, we are beneficiaries to this. If you are a Christian, the moment you believed in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God came down upon you literally and began to live inside of you. And if you are a Christian today, you have the Spirit of God living in you. He is your helper. He is your comforter. He is your teacher. He is your advocate. He convicts you. He convicts me. He, he leads us. He gives us really a personal subjective reality of the truth of Christianity. It is subjective. It's a, it's a personal ministry from Him. According to Romans 8, that we can cry out to Father and say, Abba, Father. I don't care what anybody says. I know you are true. Why is that? Why do you know so definitively so? It is the ministry of the Spirit who lives in you, who will never leave you or forsake you. It's awesome. We are beneficiaries of what is called the new covenant. This is the new covenant, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit living in every believer. So that is the foundation. Peter says to the crowd, you should know you are Jews. It's there. It's in Joel. And it is being fulfilled before your very eyes. That is the introduction. Now let's go and look at the meat of his sermon. It's a short sermon. It probably takes uh, two minutes to read it. So he probably we know he preached longer than that. But Luke is consolidating as he's moved by, by the Holy Spirit, giving us the main points of what Peter said. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel, the good news. So let's look at it. Uh, four components. First, uh, point number two is the incarnation. God became a man. That's where the gospel starts. Verse 22, Peter has this captive audience. And he says, men of Israel. He's identifying that Peter was a man of Israel. He was a Jew. And he's pleading with these men, the men of Israel. They are Jews. They are there celebrate. They just celebrated the Passover, which is where you slaughtered an innocent lamb to appease the wrath of God. Hello, we just slaughtered innocent Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, to appease the wrath of the Father. So all these Jews were there. They celebrated that feast day. Fifty days later, they're celebrating the first fruits of the Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to me. Listen to these words as he preaches. Jesus, the Nazarene. Why does he call him Jesus, the Nazarene? Well, that's a very, it's like his first and last name. That's who he was. You know, you know, Jesus of Nazarene. He's called Jesus the Nazarene throughout the book of Acts. He's called that by Paul. It's just his common name. And there is an emphasis there on his humanity. Jesus the Nazarene, they knew who Jesus was. Everybody there knew they were on the heels of the execution of this so-called Messiah named Jesus of Nazareth. They knew that. And Peter doesn't shy away from it. He cuts right to the point, Jesus the Nazarene. Now, when you do that with an unbelieving Jew and mention Jesus' name, you are immediately stirring up controversy. Many unbelieving Jews despise the name of Jesus. They don't even want to hear it. Don't talk to me about that. But it's the precious name. It's the only name. And so Peter says, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God. Attested, a very specific verb. Uh, God exhibited Jesus as the Messiah. He proved Jesus as Messiah. He put him in office as the Messiah. That's what that verb means. To you, you saw Probably many of those people were responsible for his death, yelling, crucify him, crucify him. No doubt, 
the Sadducees and Pharisees and Sanhedrin were in the audience. You saw Jesus' miracles. Man attested to you by God, Yahweh, with miracles, wonders, and signs. They validated his ministry. They validated his truthfulness. Miracles that no man could replicate or ever been replicated. Jesus opened the eyes of a man born blind, which had never been done in the history of the world, not even in the days of Moses. And they knew it with miracles, wonders, signs, which God, Yahweh, your God, performed through him. And he did it in your midst. You were eyewitnesses flying in the face of the truth. They crucified him. And he says, just as you yourselves know. You know, you can't argue with me. You can't. Now, already with Peter's straightforward approach, sticking to the facts, empowered by the Spirit, addressing them personally, you can already feel the guilt in their gut. Some of them feeling like they just got punched in the gut. Out of the gate. So that's the foundation in the heart of the gospel. It is the incarnation that God became a man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who has existed for all time, who is uncreated, who is deity himself and worthy of worship, savior of the world, the only judge of every soul. This God became a man in Jesus the Nazarene. It's the foundation of the good news. Every person needs to understand that before they can believe the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. So you've got the incarnation, and next Peter goes on with the crucifixion. The gospel is who is Jesus and what did he do? And the crucifixion answers what did he do? The crucifixion planned by God. This is amazing. One of the most mysterious verses in all of the Bible, verse 23. This man, this Jesus, delivered over by the pre delivered over, given up, to be arrested, given up, to be crucified, delivered over, handed over, willfully, deliberately, knowingly. Well, who did that? God the Father did. Jesus delivered up by the predetermined plan of the foreknowledge of God the Father. That is amazing. Who crucified or who killed Jesus? Who planned his death? Who planned his... You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were planning it in the shadows behind the scenes. Weeks before his death, thinking they're being all secretive and making a deal with Judas and nobody knows, hush, hush, make sure the crowd doesn't know. And all the while, ironic, God the Father has planned this down to the last detail in eternity past. This was God's plan that Jesus would be given up to be crucified. Uh, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. As a matter of fact, Jesus helped plan his crucifixion as almighty God. Wow. So the fact that Jesus got crucified was God's plan? Yes. You mean God was responsible for the death of Christ? Yes. But someone else was responsible. It's the second half of verse 23. He says, even though it's the, the plan of Almighty God, planned in eternity, you nailed to a cross. Wow. There's another punch right in the gut. You killed him. You cried for his blood. You nailed to a cross by the hands, you Jews, Jewish men who knew the Old Testament, who knew the prophecies of the Messiah, who knew Isaiah 53, who knew Psalm 22. You killed him. The Jews, unbelieving Jews. And then it says this, by the hands of godless men, that's the Romans. 
you handed him over to the Romans. You handed him over to dirty Gentiles and Pilate and put him to death. So who was responsible for the death of Christ? God the Father and wicked sinners. Isn't that amazing? How do you resolve that? You don't. That That is a mystery resolved only in the mind of God, and you just believe it by faith. That is reason for worshiping Almighty God. That is absolutely amazing. Even though God planted an eternity past, these wicked sinners who made this decision and who killed Jesus, they are still culpable. They are. So that's the crucifixion. Then he goes on with the resurrection. So it's Jesus, man of God, did miracles, representative of God, deity in the flesh, crucified according to God's plan, died in the place of sinners as their substitute, and that isn't all. He was raised from the dead. Verse 24, but God, but God raised him up. The Father raised him up, the Spirit raised him up, and Jesus said he raised himself from the grave. God raised Jesus up again, putting him putting an end to the agony of death. God killed death with the death of Christ. Death was the greatest weapon of the devil. That's what Hebrews 2, 14 and following says. And Jesus' death took away that power of death that laid in the hands of the devil. So Christ's death conquered death itself, putting an end to the agony of death Since, because there's now life beyond the grave, there's life beyond death through the resurrection of Christ and those who know him, that is our fate. If we die in this life and you know Christ, you are raised again, resurrection glory someday in the future. That is the hope of the Christian. As a matter of fact, if you as a Christian die, you go immediately into the presence of God in heaven. That is our hope. But God raised Jesus up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in death's power. For David, the prophet says, so David, so then he quotes, Peter does Psalm 16, which is a prophecy 1000 BC that Peter wrote out, uh, that David wrote out, that David preached, that David prophesied. Some of that applied to David in his life. Some of it went beyond the life of David and was prophetic. Now, David was a king of Israel, but David was also a prophet. That's what he's called right here. He was a prophet of God. This is a messianic psalm, Psalm 16. And it's about the resurrection of the Messiah. In the emphasis, Peter quotes Psalm 16 not to prove the resurrection. Peter quotes Psalm 16 to prove that Jesus was the Messiah by virtue of his resurrection. Big difference. And the Jews should have known that. I saw the Lord always in my presence, prophesied David, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. This is the Messiah speaking a thousand years before his death. Through Scripture, through the Holy Spirit, the prophecy of David. Therefore, my, ho- my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, said the Messiah when he got crucified, because you will not abandon my soul to the grave. That's the Messiah talking to the Father. Nor allow your Holy One, me, the Messiah, the Holy One, the sinless one, to undergo decay. David was not a Holy One. He was a sinner. Jesus was the Holy One, the sinless one. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus did not die. Jesus did not decay. David died and his body rotted in the grave. And David's tomb was still around to be seen in the days of Peter. This cannot refer to David. This has to be the Messiah. And you Jews, you know it. Verse 28, you have made known to me the ways of life. That's resurrection life. And you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter's a master expositor in exegete because he reads the scripture and then he explains it in context. 
pointing out the obvious. Verse 29, brethren, fellow Jews, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, David is a prophet, David is a patriarch. Patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. There is no way he could have fulfilled Psalm 16. It's got to be talking about the Messiah. Verse 30, and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him, David, with an oath to seat one, the Messiah of his descendants, on his throne, Jesus, verse 31, he looked ahead, David did, and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, of the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus of Nazareth, in order that he was neither abandoned to the grave, nor did his flesh suffer decay. As a result, verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up to which we are all witnesses. Point, Peter says, Jesus is the Messiah by virtue of fulfilling this resurrection prophecy. You can't deny it. Amazing. There's the third punch right in the gut to many of these Jewish people who knew these Old Testament prophecies. They knew about his resurrection appearances because Jesus was appearing resurrected all over the place for 40 days. Now, finally, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus, the culmination conclusion to the gospel, the good news that we bring to unbelievers that they might be saved. The resurrection, death is defeated, verses 24 and following. Or I'm sorry, uh, the resurrection, death, uh, number five, the exaltation, Jesus' reign as Lord overall. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, that's the ascension. Jesus died. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, visited for 40 days, and then he was ascended into heaven. We saw that in Acts chapter 1. Therefore, having been exalted or ascended on high to the right hand of God, the right hand is a place of authority. Jesus had authority given to him by the Father. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus accomplished his work as the Messiah, He was given authority from the Father to give the Holy Spirit. Jesus had the authority to give the Holy Spirit. It was the Son of Man. It was Jesus who gave the Holy Spirit, and that's what he did. The Father gave him the promise of the Holy Spirit. As a result, the Holy Spirit has been poured out, and that is what you both see and hear. The reason the Holy Spirit of God has been poured out today is because the work of Christ and the person of Christ. He is the Messiah of the Old Testament, crucified and risen from the dead, sitting at the right hand of the Father with all authority. Verse 34, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord. This is David again, referring to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, where God the Father refers to the Messiah as Lord in the Old Testament. Yahweh calls the Messiah Lord. Jesus is Lord. The Father is Lord. And David is like, wow. God the Father is calling somebody else Lord. He's calling the Messiah Lord. And God the Father says, the Messiah, sit at my right hand at the time of the ascension. And that's where Jesus is today, verse 35, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Until That hasn't happened yet in verse 35. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's going to happen someday. That's going to happen at the judgment of Christ beginning at the second coming. And in the meantime, God is reaching out and calling out to sinners in His grace, uh, desiring that they would be saved. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And it is the job of the church through the Great Commission to keep preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is a solution to separation that comes from sin. It is the person of Christ and His work. And God, through His Spirit and through His gospel, 
is wooing the hearts of all sinners to come to him. And it's been 2,000 years. And some people ask, well, why has God waited 2,000 years for Jesus to come? Maybe more. Why is God waiting so long? One of the answers could be is that God is a patient God. He's a forgiving God. And the longer he waits, the more people will respond and be saved. And the fullness of the saints will be brought in. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord, he has authority, and Christ. He's the promised one of the Old Testament. This Jesus whom you crucified. And next week, we're going to look at the response from these Jews who were listening as they were overwhelmed with conviction and guilt. And they wanted an answer and they wanted relief from what Peter had laid before them. We're going to close in prayer, but before we do, just I want to appeal to those of you maybe who don't know Jesus Christ personally. <clears throat> and hopefully this sermon from Peter highlighted the most important things you need to know about Jesus. He is God become man. He came for a plan to die on the cross for sinners, to be punished by God the Father in the place of sinners. He rose again from the dead in power and glory. He conquered death, sin, the devil, hell. He ascended on high. He reigns as king. He is Lord and Christ over every man, whether they believe or not. And if you believe that and understand that you are a sinner and the only place you have for relief and forgiveness is in the Lord Jesus Christ, all you have to do is cry out to him. I'm a sinner. God, forgive me. Lord Jesus, forgive me. He'll answer that prayer. He'll forgive you. He will change your life for all eternity. That is the good news. That is the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this day and the great privilege to worship with the saints on a historic day. Known as Pentecost Sunday, thank you in your providence, God, for bringing this passage to our attention this very day. Thank you for the clear reminder of who Jesus is, that he's the, the only Savior the only judge, the only hope of humanity, patient, gracious, not willing that any would die in their sins. God, those of us who know you, we thank you for salvation you've imparted to us, forgiveness of sin, relief from guilt, eternity with you. And those who don't know you, God, we just continue to pray for them, that you'd minister to them, keep working on their hearts with your truth and with your spirit. And we commit them to you. We thank you for this day. We pray it all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.